we're continuing in our guest speaker series that we lined up. We have um, one of the best speakers, in my opinion, in the city, and I won't embarrass him too much, but uh, to say that with us this morning is Erwin McManus. Erwin is the pastor of Mosaic Church. Mosaic is a worshiping community that has been built up and welcomes people of all um, so many different walks of life. And within that word mosaic um, is Irwin's and his staff's dream of the shatteredness of humanity that somehow comes together, the fragmented pieces that are brought together and under the work of a master creator become a work of art. Um, Irwin speaks all over the world. His wife, Kim, and he have raised children here in L.A. He's the author of a couple of books that many of us have read, Soul Cravings and Wide Awake. And this morning, would you help me welcome Irwin McManus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Irwin and the ministry of Mosaic. Lord, we ask that you would set him aside in this time and this space, this common man for a holy purpose. Would you empower him by the Holy Spirit with words that are bold, with words that are healing, with words that are provocative. God, would your message ring through him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. It's a little strange to be on this side of the city. I'm usually a little grungier part of L.A. Where all the tourists go, I don't really know why. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 20. We'll begin reading in the middle of Stephen's one and only sermon before he was stoned to death for his confession of Christ. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his parents' home. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled the Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place we are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. I love the story of Moses for a number of reasons, but one of the peculiar things for this time of the year, when we're focusing on the birth of Christ, is that it was a very common narrative to connect the coming of the Messiah with the story of, of Moses. 
In fact, when Jesus came, after he was crucified and raised from the dead, a significant part of the way the story of Jesus was told, the part of the way that those early Jewish converts were helped to understand that Jesus was the Christ, was to tell the story of Moses and to show that God's activity in human history paralleled what he was doing in this moment. And so now Stephen is trying to convince this audience of Jewish potential converts that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he takes them all the way back to what God did with Moses. God has a unique and particular way of working in human history. And I love the end part of this particular passage when it tells us that God heard the cries of his people. He heard the groanings of humanity. And God was moved with compassion. It was determined to act, which is what I want to focus on for a few moments here this morning. I mean, we are in the midst of a tragedy, a moment of horrific violence, a moment where our faiths are oftentimes shattered and shaken. And we wonder, how in the world could this happen if a God who is merciful and compassionate exists? Yet one of the things we find over and over again in the scriptures is that God has a very clear methodology of acting. God has a very specific and poignant way of intervening in human history, and that is through us. God's intervention, God's compassion, God's proactivity is made manifest through the actions of those people whose hearts are turned toward him. And God chooses people like Moses, which for me is incredibly encouraging. When you hear the stories of people like Moses and David and Samson and and, and Deborah and Esther, you, you tend to get only the upside of the story. You really find the story diverging away from all the dark, gritty parts of their lives. Which I think is sort of a tragedy because then we have these individuals who we heroize and we idealize and think we could never be like them. But if you read the story of Moses and David and Samson and so many others, you think, maybe I don't want to be like them. Because if their best is something that inspires us, their worst should be something that actually warns us. If anyone had the opportunity to live a life that was entirely divergent from his potential and his calling and destiny. It was Moses. But I love verse 20. It says, At this time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. No ordinary child born in extraordinary circumstances. For three months he was cared for in his parents' home. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. I love the story of Moses for a number of reasons. Here's a guy who had every reason to miss his mark, to lose his destiny, to never live up to his potential, and to live a life of extraordinary neurosis and psychosis. I mean, there's some of you here who probably struggle with identity issues and, and trying to figure out who you are and, and wondering why you've had to live through what you've lived through. Have you ever felt as if there was all this incredible capacity in you, all this potential inside of you, but because of what you've been through, you can't live up to that? Well, that's the story of Moses. You think you have a crisis of identity? Imagine being Moses, born the son of slaves, in an era where everyone who is your peer was wiped out through a mandate of an evil king who wanted you dead. Your parents could find no better option than at three months old to put you inside of what would be potentially an infant's tomb 
drop you into the river, hoping the crocodiles would not eat you, but never imagining that the daughter of the man who wanted you dead would pick you up and adopt you as her own. That is enough for a lifetime of therapy. He grows up all of his life a Jew in the home of the Egyptian, a slave in the home of the king. And Moses is now educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. He is uncertain about who he is. A part of him is an Israelite and a part of him is an Egyptian. And it was an internal struggle and tension and tragedy wrapped up in flesh and blood. And there comes a moment then when Moses has to realize his destiny. He senses that he has a unique calling on his life, that he is supposed to be the deliverer of Israel. So what does he do? He goes out and he sees the Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so he kills the Egyptian. And the scriptures tell us that this was Moses' idea, that he thought that this is exactly what he should do so that the people would recognize that he is supposed to be the ruler sent by God. Moses' moral compass was so skewed, his ethical center was so shattered and fragmented, he actually thought that God wanted him to kill an Egyptian as proof that he was the savior of Israel. And then he thought he got away with it by covering it over, so he knew enough that it was wrong to not let everybody know. And the next day he sees two Israelites, they're fighting with each other, and he jumps in to be their judge, to be their leader, their deliverer, their hope. And one of them says, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now Moses knows he's been found out. And like every hero who kills someone in cold blood, he runs for his life. Because not only is Moses a murderer, he's a coward. He's one of our heroes. Aren't you feeling really good about our legacy? He runs, disappears, and loses 40 years of his life. What could have happened in those 40 years lived out for God? rather than running from him. So we go back to this first phrase. When Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. Certainly his life turned out to be up to this point so far less than ordinary. I'm pretty certain when Moses was born, he wasn't glowing. I don't think there were angels audibly singing. I think when Moses was born, he looked like an ordinary child. I think he looked wrinkled and goopy and... and, and, and really inadequate in every way, incapable of working, speaking, feeding himself, born naked and ashamed. I think when Moses was born, he looked just like any ordinary child. This is Stephen projecting backwards through Moses' story to Moses' beginning. You see the same thing in the book of Hebrews. It says that within three months, his parents knew he was no ordinary child. That somehow they were looking back on the life of this person saying, when Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many ordinary children are born. See, I know this is true about Moses, that when he was born, he was no ordinary child. But I started suspecting that that was also true about all of us. In fact, I'm convinced that there has never been an ordinary human being born on this planet. Now, Kim and I, my wife, we've had two children that she's given birth to, and I, I've been, I was, I was around. And, and when Aaron was born, I can tell you, my heart just exploded with pride and love. And I can tell you without any doubt that when my son Aaron was born, he was no ordinary child. He was extraordinary, far more extraordinary than your children. And, 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 and then my daughter, Mariah, when she was born, I'm telling you, Aaron was extraordinary. 
And I didn't think that could even be matched. But when Mariah was born, she was no ordinary child. I wonder how many of you here are parents. I'm just curious, which one of you, when your child was born, had the ordinary child? Don't, don't raise, your kid's going to need therapy all their lives because you just raised your hand. All right. No, in fact, when your child was born, your child was no ordinary child at all. But something strangely happens. Because if we would acknowledge that there has never been one single ordinary human being born, we have to also acknowledge the painful reality that most of us die tragically ordinary. You see this in so many different aspects, or even like language. It's very hard for someone who's older to learn a new language, no matter what Rosetta Stone tells you. And I wonder, how many of you speak two languages? A few, three? Some of you have linguistic capacities that are very unique, and you just have an affinity for languages. How many of you basically only picked up one language? Okay, that's called English. You know what they say around the world? There's trilingual, bilingual, and American, right? Now, here's the strange thing, though. You may not feel like you have any natural capacity for language, but I can tell you, when you were two years old, you were a linguistic savant. You were introduced to a language you, you never knew. And you picked up one of the most difficult languages that has ever been created, English. And it was easy for you. It was child's play. You could do it while you were sucking on your toes. You could learn English so easily. You were a genius. You were a savant. And I'm telling you, if they had moved you to China, you would have learned Mandarin. If they had moved you to Germany, you would have picked up German so easily. It would have been the most natural thing. They could have moved you to Brazil and you would have been speaking Portuguese. And they might have moved you to England and you, it would have, you would have had a hard time picking up that language. But <laughs> Because when you were born, your brain was flexible and fluid and pliable. But as you get older, that natural dynamic of being extraordinary seems to move toward being ordinary. Those who, I guess, study neuroscience tell us that, that, that there's these two forms of thinking, divergent and convergent thinking, or convergent thinking, and, and most adults, about 95% of adults, think of what they would describe as convergent thinking. You have one answer, one answer. It just moves down to this singular solution. But about 5% of people have this divergent process of thinking. It's highly creative. A thousand answers or possibilities to one question. But what they find among children before the age of 12 is that about 95% of them actually naturally think in divergent thinking, and only about 5% think in convergent thinking. That we actually have to teach our children to not think creatively. We have to teach our children to stop imagining endless possibilities so they can fill in the blank and go to college. Somewhere between our first breath and our last breath, the extraordinary gets sucked out of our souls. And what I know is that there is extraordinary place inside of each person, a gift from God himself to the world. I, I thought I would quote some Shakespeare this morning since I'm here. It seems appropriate. So I should choose a quote from Shakespeare. Since, since I only know one, I'll pick this one. It, Shakespeare said this, some men are born great and others attain greatness. And so others have greatness thrust upon them. I love this quote. 
Because it, it, it's a reminder to me that there are multiple opportunities to find greatness in your life. But what Shakespeare's saying is some men are born great. They're born the sons of kings, the sons of noblemen. Some are, are born of nobility and royalty. Maybe they have the blood of a Kennedy or a Roosevelt. Some of you were born great. You were born with a huge legacy. You were born into a family that assumed you had this immense destiny. But Shakespeare's reminding us that most of us are born of common stock. We're dust. And if you're like me, you knew you were not born great. My, my mom, we're from El Salvador, and so English was always an interesting dilemma. But she would always say, Alex, what a beautiful baby with his black curly hair. And, and Duffy, what a beautiful baby with her red hair and green eyes. And Leah, what a beautiful baby with her blonde hair and brown eyes. And Erwin, he looked like a rat. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I, I, I've been needing therapy all my life for that. And, and I finally went to my mom and said, Mom, why would you say that? I mean, you would tell everyone that I looked like a rat. She goes, honey, I didn't mean that in a negative way. And... <laughs> It's just that you were so skinny when you were born. And had a strange affection for cheese. And, uh, and so I knew I was not born great. And yet Shakespeare says that others attain greatness. Maybe you're one of those. See, maybe you were born into a family that just assumed you had a story to tell. A story to write. A history to create. And you were born great. Or maybe you're like me, and you felt as if you were nothing but common material. But others attain greatness, and there are some people that are just prodigies. They're, they're prodigious. They're, they're savants. They're, they're so naturally talented and gifted that, that those talents begin oozing by the time they're eight years old. You're, you're, you're grappling with calculus at the age of nine. You're a world-class cellist by the age of 11. You're Olympic gold medalist by the age of 15. There are people like that out there. The sole purpose of making the rest of us feel inadequate. And my brother is one of those people. Fastest kid in the United States in sixth grade. I mean, why do you need to be fast in the sixth grade? Plays quarterback, breaks all the conference passing records. And not only was he a great athlete, he was also a brilliant student. And so I grew up with a brother in the same grade who was a year and a half older than me, who was always the most talented person in the room. I, I had memorized the phrase, why can't you be like your brother Alex? Some of you know exactly what that is. I knew I had not attained greatness. One of the signs was I was a straight D student, first through 12th grade. I didn't want to overachieve and be perceived as arrogant. And I remember my last day of high school. I had broken a lot of the bones across my hand playing football, and so I used it as an excuse to not do any of my homework. And on the last day of school, I turned in about 20, 25 short stories to my English teacher, which really upset her. And she looked at me and she said, Erwin, have you thought about going to college? And I said, yeah, you know, maybe. She said, you will never make it. I said, thank you. And that was the last conversation I had out of college. And I went right from there to cooking pizzas and hamburgers and wandering through the streets, not knowing what I was going to do with my life, because the last voice I had in my mind was, you will never make it. See, I know there are some of you here in this room, no matter how much you put it on, no matter what people see on the outside of you, there's this old voice inside of your soul saying, I'm just not good enough. 
There's just too many other people who are just a bit more talented and a bit more intelligent and a bit more proactive and a bit more savvy. And you just always feel as if you've gotten the short end of the stick. You're terrified that you're going to live and die and never be enough to drown in your own inadequacy and insignificance. And Shakespeare says there are others who attain greatness, but still others have greatness thrust upon them. I love this. See, that's exactly what happened to Moses. See, Moses was not born great. He was the son of a slave, a survivor of a holocaust. The singular reminder of a tragedy that left a scar on everyone. Every day of Moses' life, he walked the streets, a reminder to all the parents whose children were lost. Moses was a marker, not of God's grace, but of God's absence. And God using Moses as a marker of what seemed to be God's absence, he became the marker of God's promise, God's presence, and of hope. Others have greatness thrust upon them. For 40 years, Moses wandered in the wilderness. For 40 years, Moses hid from God. He hid from the world. He hid from himself. For 40 years, Moses lived under guilt and shame. For 40 years, Moses was marked by fear and shame. And then he finds a burning bush in the middle of the desert. And he finds he is on sacred space and God calls him near. And in that moment, God says, this is what is happening in human history. My people are crying out and I am going to act. And guess what, Moses? The way I act in human history is I call out men and women to step into this great tragedy and bring my triumphant hand. Moses, I am going to send you. This is what I know about everyone in this room. Maybe you were not born great. And maybe you've never attained greatness. But I know that the moment you enter into a relationship with the living God, the moment you open up your life to Jesus Christ, the moment you surrender yourself completely to Him, in that moment, greatness is thrust upon you. And no matter what you've been through, where you've been, who you've become, it all becomes simply material for the future story of God to write a story of someone who was not born ordinary and maybe has lived extraordinarily ordinary or maybe has lost completely their sense of destiny. But in that moment, greatness is thrust upon you and God is waiting to do in you what only He can do through you. I've always thought that God limited Himself far too much by choosing to work through us. How about you? I mean, talk about tying your hands to decide that every great divine act would be executed through the instrumentation of humans. You see, it's not incidental that God himself stepped into human history, took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus, because this is how God gets it done. He steps out of eternity into history. He takes who he is in spirit and moves it into flesh and blood, and God acts through humanity. And he waits for that person, that woman, that man, that individual that says, God, 
I want to be an instrument in your hands to usher in all the good, to usher in all the beauty, to usher in all the hope, to usher in the future that only you can imagine. And then there's a strange intersection between what God will do and what we must do. A few years ago, a friend of mine who writes for this um, family-friendly TV show called Dexter, and... (laughs) It's about a serial killer who kills serial killers. It's um, not something I recommend to your children or, or, or to you. But, but <laughs> Scott's been one of the writers and producers for a few years. We've been really good friends for a long time. And he called me up. He said, Erwin, I have an idea for a, a TV pilot. And I wrote it with you in mind. And I'd like to finish it with you. And I, and I, want, you to, I want you to be the main character. And I said, Scott, you know, I'm not, I'm not an actor or anything like that. And I don't know if that's a good idea. He goes, no, no, I wrote the character specifically for you. I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be easy. It's going to be a natural. I said, well, sure, what is it? He goes, it's an assassin. And uh, I, I never fully unwrapped that, but I was excited. I, I've always wanted to be a samurai. And, uh, and, and so this was sort of like the Latin version of a samurai, an assassin. And, and so I, I started learning how to do stunts. And we have a friend who starts teaching me how to fall out of buildings so I don't get permanently damaged. And another person who's a military expert teaching me how to use guns and then another person teaching me how to say lines and and not humiliate myself and so we're i'm learning all these different things all at one time and and we're working through the scenes and then he says okay there's one huge stunt and do you want to do the stunt that is really the critical scene because if you don't do it it won't look just right and i said sure what is it he goes well we have this big giant guy he's like six 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 seven he's gonna throw you through a skyscraper window and we, and, and so we need you to be the one that gets thrown through the window. And I said, oh, sure, that, that'll, that'll be fun. It'll all be like Hollywood. It'll look like it's dangerous. He goes, well, it'll be a little bit more than that. It will actually be dangerous because we can't use Hollywood glass. It won't break right. We have to use real skyscraper glass. And that way it'll break right. And, and I said, okay, so how does it work? He just throws me through the glass. He goes, no, no it'll look like he's throwing you through, but you have to jump through. I said, okay. And, and I, I said, do you think I can jump through with enough force to break the glass? He goes, no, you, you, you can't because skyscraper glass is really thick. And, and so what we have to do is we have to get a detonation team and they're going to set explosives on each corner and, and they'll hit the detonation button the moment your face hits the glass. And the timing is really important. And I thought about this. You know, I didn't really sign up for this. And I was putting in 16-hour days, and I would come home exhausted. My wife Kim would say, still having fun? I'd go, yeah, yeah, I'm still having fun. And so we got to that day, and we were on this, the roof of this building in Hollywood, and they had three plates of glass. And I said, well, what are the three plates for? And he goes, well, we might need to do multiple takes. I said, no, no, this is, this is going to be a one-take scene. I can tell you, I know it. I feel it. And I'm inspired. And, and so they're setting up the glass and they're putting the explosives in the corners and I'm standing up on this platform. They're saying, okay, we're going to count down three, two, one, and then you have to jump. And he's explaining to me, Erwin, you have to jump with full force. You, you can't hesitate because if you hesitate, you're going to hit that glass and bounce back off. It's, it's going to be bad and the timing will be off. It'll explode in your face and, 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 and you can't leave too soon because you cannot break that glass. And, and so you, you have to hit it with all the force that you can. It's the only way this scene's going to work. And I said, oh, okay, 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 I'll, I'll do it. And he goes, oh, by the way, by the way, close your eyes because you could go blind. 
And he goes, and don't forget, close your mouth, because if you eat glass, it's, it's, it's really bad. And so I'm, okay, 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 okay. I close my eyes, close my mouth, look natural. Hit the glass with my head. It's going to be three, two, like one, one, or is it two, two, one, go. And, and, and then they're going, clear the set, which is a phrase I'd never heard. Clear the set. And I go, what are you doing? So we're clearing the set. And so I start walking. No, no, you have to stay. They go, we're clearing the set. I said, why? I said, well, we need to protect the crew. Like, I'm a part of the crew. And, and so everybody leaves and they start covering the cameraman with canvases so they don't get hurt by the glass and these straight pieces of glass going in their direction. And, and then Boba Fett shows up from Star Wars. Boba Fett was on the set. So I, I can't chicken out because Boba Fett's there. There's honor now. And, and, and so he's overseeing the stunt. And so it goes three, two. I could hear my heart pounding against my chest. I, I, I thought my chest was going to explode. I didn't know if I was jump. Two, one. I didn't have a thought. Jump. I don't remember jumping. I have it on film though. I know I jumped. I have proof. But I don't remember. All I remember is flying through the air and hearing poof. And I just felt myself flying through this glass. And when I landed, they said, don't move, don't move, because my face was bleeding everywhere. There's glass lodged into my forehead and other places. And we got it in one take. And in that moment, something became so vivid. See, in our relationship with God, what we want is we want to jump through the barriers that keep us from living the life that is most extraordinary. But we want God to hit the designation, that nation button, before we jump. We want God to destroy the obstacles and the barriers before we jump. But the timing has to be exactly right. We have to jump first by faith, with courage, into the life God created us to live. And when we're in full flight and there is no return... In that moment where our foreheads hit that glass, and if God doesn't come through, we are made fools. In that moment where God has to show up, that is when greatness is thrust upon us. That is when we return to that early beginning, that when you were born, you were no ordinary child. That moment where you lay your life out for God's purpose, in God's name, for God's glory, and you leap in his direction, and you say, God, I will live the extraordinary or die. That's the life Jesus came for us to live. Because when God works, it always materializes in flesh and blood. Let's pray together. I thank you, Lord God, that there's not one singular person in this room that was born with the genetic code to be ordinary. That every single person here, when they were born, they were no ordinary job. But God, I know, I just know that in this room there's some people who are drowning in the ordinary, the mundane, the compromise, the average, who have entrusted their life to the safe place of mediocrity. And I pray, God, that today you would set them free to once again be the extraordinary human you created them to be. This, Jesus, is our prayer in your name.